right, let's dive in. If you have a Bible this morning, turn to Genesis chapter one, if you would. Genesis chapter one, it's where we were last week, it's where we'll be uh, this week and perhaps even longer as we progress through this uh, short series to start the year. Uh, Genesis chapter one, we're gonna be in verse 26 today and then we're gonna flip over to Genesis chapter two. Y'all read along with me, here we go. The Lord said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and they will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in, his, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning on the sixth day. If you guys would turn over with me to chapter two, we're gonna start in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Thank you, Lord. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. But the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. This is the word of our Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we come before you today, and I thank you for these passages in Genesis, um, particularly our cre uh, creation narrative. Lord, we could spend years studying them and not mind the depths of um, wisdom and knowledge and understanding that are here. So Lord, we thank you that no matter how many times we read Genesis 1, 2, and three, Lord, you have something new for us, something profound, and I pray today as we dig in that you would teach us. God, would you use my voice for your glory and for the good of the people who are here today? We pray these things in your name, amen. Traditionally, scholars believe that the author of Genesis is Moses, okay? so. Uh, not only Genesis, but the Torah at large, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, traditionally is believed to have been written by Moses, okay? So the idea is that there was oral tradition that came down the pipe that Moses recorded in tandem with the Lord. He received the law at Mount Sinai, and then he continued to write 
um, the Torah as he spent time with the Lord in the tabernacle uh, in the days that followed after the Exodus, okay? So this is the authorship of the book. And the question I wanna ask this morning, the reason I bring up Moses and bring up this period of time is to ask this question, a question that was asked of me uh, about four months ago and truly a question that's changing my life. Here's the question. What would the Hebrew creation account mean to Hebrew people in the time of Moses? Stated another way, what would these words mean to the Hebrew people after 400 years of slavery? Right? As Moses writes these things down, as the people engage with them, what would it mean to them? If you are taking notes today, I want to ask you to go ahead and grab your notebook and start taking notes right away. The first thing that this particular, these particular passages would mean to these people, they would encourage them, number one. They would encourage them. I believe that for the people who are reading this passage, these Hebrew people who have been enslaved for 400 years, it's many generations, that this would be an opportunity for God to communicate to them, you are someone, okay? You are someone, you are more than a slave. You're more than an inconsequential number in a mass of humanity building this thing for the empire. You were made in my image. Steve talked about some of this last week. In this world, if people are looking for something that images me, they find you. These are the things that are being communicated to these people. Look what I did in creation when I made you. You image me in doing the same things that I do. These are noble thoughts that God's communicating through the creation narrative to his people after they had been in many ways dehumanized by the Egyptian government. God's communicating to them, you have agency, you have power, you possess creativity, you have freedom, you're capable of more than what you've been told. I was thinking this week, what did the Israelites think? You know, they're out of slavery, they've come across the Red Sea and they're on the other side. I just wonder like on a Tuesday morning when they're used to like someone saying, get out there and get it done, what do they do? You ever wonder those things? What do I do today? I don't know. I'm used to someone telling me and telling my parents and telling my grandparents and telling their grandparents, but what do I do today? And I think in reading narratives like the Genesis narrative, perhaps the answer is, well, you have freedom to do whatever you want today. You're a child of God. You have the creativity and capacity to make things, not just for the empire, but for the glory of God, right? You're capable of more than you've been told and more than you've experienced to this point. But here's the thing, you have gotta know that one of the struggles to understanding and absorbing passages like these passages for this group of people is what I would call a slave mentality. And here's what I mean when I say that. A slave mentality and the idea of shedding a slave mentality defined, I would say, is a limiting view of self, your family, your community based upon previously held beliefs formed through generations of trauma, indignity, objectification, helplessness, and even perceived helplessness, right? We find this to be true. We often skim over the moment after Israel leaves Egypt and just kind of move on with the story. But you have to know that a people who sat in brutal slavery for 400 years don't come out of that with some trauma. They don't come out of that moment without some baggage that they're carrying around. And it's true, we see it throughout their story, particularly in the wilderness, they struggled. It's like, it's a, you know, again, like what do I eat? 
It's like, well, what do you want to eat? It's like, I don't know. Every day they told us what to eat and we ate what we were supposed to eat. Well, I'll bring you manna. Or, oh, this man, I don't know what to do with this thing. Like, you can just see like the paralysis and not really understanding what it means to be a free human being. They struggle with it. Let me, let me give you one passage where I think you see that slave mentality in like really vivid, uh, really vivid view. Numbers 13, 31 through 33. So here's what's happened here. The, the Israelites, Moses, the leadership have sent spies into the promised land to look at it to give them a report when they come back and make a decision about whether or not they wanna go into the promised land. So God's led the uh, Hebrews out of Egypt into the wilderness and now they're about to go into the promised land. They send the spies in and this is their report. But the men who'd gone up with them responded, we can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. And the land we had passed through to explore is the one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, this sentence is so telling, to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers. And we must have seemed the same to them. Let me read that again, to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. Do you want an example of that slave mentality? There's your example. At the Israelites, when they look at themselves, they see weakness. They see a limited future for them, right? And you can't blame them. They've, they've been through some stuff, right? There's a part of me that wonders if in this moment, God is looking at his people and thinking, you're just not ready for the promised land. And if you go there with this mentality, with this mindset, you're gonna wind up slaves again. You're gonna wind up in that same spot you were in before. And so y'all need to walk around in the wilderness with me for a while, right? Let me provide for you and show you what it's like to be a human walking with the Lord, right? Let me reprogram and re-educate your way of thinking, not just about me, but also about yourselves, right? And that's where passages like these come in. Right, passages that they poured over day after day after day, thinking about what they meant for their life. Passages that began the process of educating them on what humanity was really meant for in this world, okay? Rabbinical, as I said, or rabbinical tradition holds that God gave Moses the Torah at Mount Sinai and also Moses spent time with him in the tabernacle writing. So the Hebrew people basically have 40 years in the wilderness to think on the Torah before they enter the promised land. This is important stuff. And I believe these words in Genesis 1 and 2 would have challenged and encouraged them deeply. I think they would have reminded them, when it comes to the grand scheme of things, you are someone. You corporately and individually are someone. And I think it would have encouraged them. Number two, it not only encourages them, but I believe that these words would have inspired them. I believe these words, as they read them, would have had quite an impact on them, right? And here's the thing that I think would inspire them. You are more capable than you think you are. You are more capable than you think. Okay, it's really interesting. When you look at Genesis chapter one in particular, there's this creative pattern, this creation pattern, where God uh, does the work of creation and then he invites human beings to do what he did, right? And so being an image bearer is being someone who images, like a mirror, who does what God 
does. So in creation, God creates in a particular way and then he invites humanity to do the same. Some of us as parents get this, right? It's like, I do it, you watch, you do it, okay? We know this pattern. So Israel, in uh, some ways, by reading this passage, they weren't there at the very beginning, but in reading the passage, they can see this is what God does and then God turns around after he does it and invites humanity to do much of the same. Right, and it's true, God can run the affairs of human beings on his own, but this is important, he invites and equips us, even from the beginning, to participate in his creation and what he, he does. Okay, let's look at a few words together today that I think are important words in the process of bearing God's image. Uh, if you would, turn to Genesis chapter one, we're gonna be in verse 28. It says, God blessed them. Let me read that one more time just so you remember what happens here. God blessed them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. So let's dig into some of these words this morning. The, the, the phrase, be fruitful and multiply, two Hebrew words, para and rabah, right? These two words are significant because they are a reminder that God was fruitful Right? He created a world, this is so cool, a world where he made things and filled them and created processes where multiplication happened naturally. It's beautiful. And then he makes human beings and he commands them, be fruitful and multiply. So God is commanding human beings to do a lot of what he's already been up to. Okay? You can image me in this way. The next word is the word kabosh. Not the people in the last service argued with me. I grew up in a world where the word kibosh was a word, but the way most people say it is kibosh. We got any kibosh people in the room? These words can be misunderstood, um, and I'll explain to you why. The word kibosh doesn't mean to put the kibosh on something, if that makes sense. It's kind of cheesy, but let me get into that. The word kibosh means to subdue. It means to bring about order from chaos. And it's true, there are examples in our world of where even people who are Christians have taken this word and abused it to mean basically putting your thumb on something and pushing it down, right, to subdue it, right? But what this word actually means, if you base it in the Genesis narrative, is you just do what God did. God started with a world of wild and waste and he subdued it in creating the world. And so God calls us to be people who create order from chaos the same way that he did as well, okay? Next word is the word to rule. Look back at verse 28. It says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living creature that crawls on the earth. This word rule is the word radah, which means to have dominion or to practice authority, Okay, we'll continue on. Look at chapter two, verse 15. Everybody turn over there. A couple more words. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Two more words. The word work it is the word abad. It means to cultivate, to produce life. And then finally, the word shamar, which watch is the word uh, for watch over it, means to keep guard or to watch out for, okay? So hear me when I say this. In Genesis one and two, God creates humanity in his image and he gives them the vocation and the capacity to do these things. Humanity has been called to participate with God in creation in the work of bringing order from chaos 
exercising authority over that which has been entrusted to you, cultivating life in that domain, and then watching out or guarding life in that particular domain. Okay, let me repeat that again so everybody hears it, okay? So humanity at creation is given the vocation, the responsibility, as well as the capacity to do these four things, right? And it's really more than four because you have be fruitful and multiply to start it, but let's dive into these four words. We bring order from chaos, we exercise authority over, over that which has been entrusted to us, we cultivate life there, and we watch out for it, guarding the life that's been made there, okay? It's very important that God uses the imagery of a garden here. That Adam and Eve are in a garden. It helps us as human beings so much to recognize these particular traits in a garden because when you plant a garden, it's very true, you have to bring order from chaos, don't you? Right, you have to work at exercising your authority to bring life. You cultivate through light and water and through fertilizer and all these other things, the process of cultivating life and then you protect it and make sure that it isn't destroyed. These are the capacities that God places in human beings from the very beginning. And so when we image God, we are practicing these things, okay? So humanity's been called to these things, to participate in this way, right? And again, in essence, we've been given a garden to tend. But to the Hebrew people, right, going about the work of gardening, going back to these people who come to this passage after all these years of slavery, Right, you gotta know that one of the obstacles in the way there that we've already mentioned is this, uh, this slave mentality, how they see themselves, right? And how they see the world around them, right? It caused me to think this week. Sometimes as Christians, we use the word, God use me, okay? And that's not necessarily wrong, um, but I think it would have been really difficult for the Hebrew people to hear those, those terms because they'd been used, hadn't they? They know what that feels like. Right, what God wants to invite them into is not for him to use them. What God wants to invite them into is a partnership, a relationship where he is tending them and they are tending the world that he made. Right, that's kind of what he's calling them into. But in order to get there, they gotta think about life a little bit differently. But what if they began to believe this deep down? I'm made in the image of God and that means something. I was made to partner with God in the garden he's given me. I was given the tools to do it and made uniquely in his image to accomplish it. Here's one, I can face anything the garden throws at me because I've been made to tend it. Woo, that's a one. It may be difficult, but I was made for this. And it's okay that it's difficult because that's what gardens are. My identity's not slave, my identity is image bearer, multiplier, subduer, ruler, cultivator, watchman. This is what the Hebrew people are hearing when they read these passages. You with me? Have you ever thought about this passage from this angle? Here's a provocative thought. God wouldn't call Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to subdue, rule, cultivate, and keep if he hadn't built into them the capacity to do that very thing. Can I read that again? God wouldn't call Adam and Eve to be fruitful and subdue and rule, cultivate and keep if he hadn't built into them the capacity to do that very thing. If God called Adam and Eve to these tasks, what does that mean that he thinks about them, their capacity, their potential? You ever thought about that? 
If he's called, I mean, like, this is a big task. God puts them in the garden. He gives them a, a, a piece of the world and says, you are responsible for imaging me right here. What does that mean God thinks about them? He trusts them. He thinks they're capable of doing it. Not because in and of themselves they're great, but because they're created in his image. And as his created image-bearing people, they have a capacity built into them that's profound. I'll be honest with you, I never even thought about this until about six months ago. It never even dawned on, dawned on me. All of my life, I feel like I've lived this existence as a Christian where it's like, I'm just, I'm just a worm, I'm a nobody, I can't accomplish anything, just a sinner, and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, I look up and realize, wait, hold on, in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, God places capacity inside of humanity that's profound. And all of us possess it. Okay, and we're, listen, some of you are like, yeah, but sin, like, I, I hear you, all of you in the room who are like, get to sin, right, I hear you. We're gonna get there in just a second. But before Genesis three comes Genesis one and two. We can't forget that. And this is how God makes us. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? Have you ever had a moment where you just sat down and thought, you know what? God made me to be an image bearer. And you know, that doesn't just mean like some, you know, like I look in a mirror and there I am. And you know, like it's like we try to explain image bearer and it's confusing. Have you ever just sat down and thought, God made me to quell chaos in this world? God made me to exercise authority over the parts of this world that he puts under my care. God made me to cultivate life in this world and God made me to watch over and make sure that it flourishes. That's why God made me. You know what? He didn't just make me to do that. He didn't just give me the job and then go, man, you're really bad at that job. Anybody ever feel that way as a Christian? It's like, hey, live this life. Oh, sorry, you're awful at it. Feel bad your whole life about who you are. I actually believe that what our passage teaches us is that God gave us unbelievable capacity to accomplish the, the gardening of the thing that he puts in front of us. He gave Adam and Eve this garden and he actually expected them to have the capacity to do it, to pull it off, okay? What an ennobling thought, right? Can you imagine the difference it made in the hearts of the Hebrew people, these people who've been in slavery for all these years? I'll tell you, it made a difference for me. All of us in our lives have these core lies that we struggle with, right? Anybody have those? Just these core lies from the enemy that just beat us down? I'll tell you, for me, two, this is a transparent moment, but it's true, two core lies for me. Number one, Kirk, you're weak, okay? Struggled with my whole life. Core lie number two, Kirk, you're a nobody. Struggle with it my whole life. You guys all have them too, don't you? You have these, these things that the enemy just beats you down with over and over and over again. We all struggle with these. But what if our identity began here? You were made to image God in his creativity, his power, and his care for the world. I was thinking about this week. Kirk, you are capable. The Bible says you are. Kirk, you were made for this. The Bible says you are. Here's the one that got me this week. God put you, uh, this, I just wanted for a moment, can I just speak to parents in the room? And I know it's like, well, what about the rest of us? I care about you too, I'm gonna come back to you in a second. I just talk to moms and dads for a second. God put you in the garden 
to partner with him in raising these kids? Is there chaos to quell? Right? There's a lot of chaos to quell, right? But can I tell you something? Some of you parents in the room are walking around feeling like absolute garbage because your house is chaotic. And can I tell you, you're wrong. That's the wrong way to think about it. Chaos is inevitable. Kids are crazy, they make messes. Houses are chaotic, right? So it's not, it doesn't make you a bad parent that your house is chaotic. It's just that God made you to deal with the chaos. God put the capacity in you and called you to a garden to tend that garden and part of your job there is to take chaos to put some boundaries around it so that life can happen, right? That's your job, right? It's to quell the chaos, right? That's that word subdue, right? Some of you, again, who are parents in the room, again, that next word is authority and we think if my kids rebel or they push on boundaries, I'm a failure as a parent, It's like I've completely blown it. It's like, well, actually, we live in a universe where things tend to rebel and move towards chaos and not towards order. And sometimes your kids push on boundaries, but guess what? You're not not a failure if your kids push on boundaries. You're a failure if you refuse to take on the mantle of authority in your home, right? You're the person who says, okay, I've gotta figure out a way to exercise authority, not in a way that squelches dreams and beats down my kids, not in a way that exasperates them, hello, New Testament, but in a way that builds them up, in a way that helps them become the people that God made them to be. That's just part of it. That's your job as a parent. It's your garden. It's what he's called you to. And here's what I think is blowing my mind. I think he thinks you can do it. It makes my head spin sometimes. And you, I mean, you could go on with this, right? God, as a parent, God has called you to cultivate life and not death in your home, right? To grow a garden. And sometimes we get frustrated because it's so slow, but it takes a long time to grow stuff. And then the one I think as parents we get, right? He's also called you to keep it, keep watch over the garden to protect what happens to it. Right? God's called us to these things, and I actually believe that he believes we can do it. I think he's so confident that we can do it that he's been letting human beings do this throughout human history. Been raising kids and raising kids and raising kids over and over and over again. Okay. Many of us begin with this thought when it comes to parenting. I can't, I'm a mess, it's too hard, I'm not enough. I would tell you, That is not the mentality of Genesis one and two. What if you were to think a different thought, God made me in his image to partner with him in the garden because I'm made in his image, I've got this. In fact, I was made for this. It's not easy, but gardening never is. Y'all hear me when I say this, he wouldn't have called you to the garden if he didn't believe that you could garden, right? We've gotta believe that we've been given by him what we need to accomplish the task that he gave us. And this isn't to say that sin doesn't play a part. It most assuredly does, right? Genesis 3, the next chapter is real when Adam and Eve rebel. But y'all, here's what I've realized. I think this is significant. Genesis 3 doesn't negate all of the work of Genesis 1. We're still made in the image of God. And it's not, here, I think this is a significant twist here. It's not that we're incapable, it's that we're corrupt. 
You hear me? It's not that we're incapable, it's that we're corrupt. It's not that we're weak, it's that we're wicked. That's the problem. Think about the Israelites as they looked at this passage. They're thinking the Egyptians practiced all those things. They just did them in really harsh and awful ways. Right? They still, these evil Egyptians had the same capacities that you and I have, right? To subdue, to rule, to cultivate, to keep. It's just that they subdued, ruled, cultivated, and kept an absolute disaster for the people of Israel as opposed to bringing life. They didn't follow the mandate that God gave them. They stepped out from under God's authority. And that is the story of Genesis 3. People stepping out from under God's authority and making a decision to do it their own way. But there's no doubt, when you look at the Egyptians, they subdued the people of Israel. They put their thumb on them, right, and would not let them go for 400 years. They certainly practiced authority, but it was the kind of authority that was wicked and unjust and not the kind of authority that built life and righteousness and justice into the world, right? You see that? They cultivated life for themselves, but in order to do it, they took life from the Israelites. So these capacities are built into the human experience. We are capable of much. The issue is that we have corrupt hearts that need to be made right with their creator so that we can use our capacity for what it was meant to be for. Let me give you an illustration. Um, this is gonna feel like a big twist for some of y'all. Like, wow, that was, that was quite a turn. Uh, can we throw up the first picture real quick? This uh, young man right here, uh, his name is Jackson. Anybody heard of this guy? Yeah? Name's Jackson Holiday. Jackson is the number one uh, prospect in Major League Baseball right now, Okay. He's unbelievably talented, one of the best hitters that's come through the major league pipeline in a long time, plays for the Orioles, will likely make his MLB debut in this coming season, okay? Plays second base, shortstop, they already have a shortstop in Gunnar Henderson, so he'll likely play second base or the outfield, all right? You'll see him, you'll know, that's the guy Kirk talked about from stage, all right? Unbelievably talented young man, okay? Can we go to the next slide? This is Marvin Harrison Jr., okay? Marvin Harrison Jr. Uh, is a receiver, plays for Ohio State, the Ohio State University. He is an uh, unreal athlete and is likely gonna be picked in the top five in this year's NFL draft. Uh, he's uh, probably gonna go on to be a superstar in the NFL. And the question is, do you, any of you know what these two guys have in common? Anybody? Anybody? Not their faith, their dad. That's right, okay, if you guess dad, they don't have the same dad, but they're dads. It's confusing. They don't have that in common. Both of these guys have fathers who played the sport that they play, okay? The first guy, Jackson Holiday. his dad's name is Matt Holiday. He played for the Rockies, the, I think he played for the Cardinals, Yankees, and then a little time for the A's, because everybody plays for the A's at the end of their career, right? So sad and was unbelievably talented as a hitter. So it makes sense that his son would be an unbelievably talented hitter, right? Won a batting title, several MLB All-Star games, uh, Silver Slugger Award, really great talent. Okay, the next guy, Marvin Harrison Jr., his dad is named Marvin Harrison, as you would imagine, and Marvin Harrison is this unbelievably talented receiver who played for Indianapolis, Hall of Famer, like this guy was as good as you can be as a wide receiver, okay? 
and this is his son about to step into the NFL this year. Okay, so here's why I, I bring this to you today. When you're talking about participation in the life of these young men and how they got where they got, okay, the first thing that these dads gave them that helped them achieve what they are today is genetics. Can we just be honest? They gave them their DNA, right? They gave them a piece of who they are, and as they did so, they uh, were able to use that, okay? So that's the first thing that they gave them. But the second gift that they give them that's significant for us to point out is they gave them their time and their energy and their instruction, their expertise, and so on. Right, some of you dads in this room have been the dad, like, all right, I'm sitting on a bucket, I'm gonna put another ball there, you hit it into the net, another ball there, you hit it into the net, and you just do that over and over until you are so bored like you can barely function in your life, right? This is a part of being a parent, right? You're in the front yard throwing the football over and over and over and over again. That's an investment and in a, in a participation in the life of that particular individual. Here's what I'm trying to get at. The same way that those two men donated their genetics to these uh, young men to help them become who they are. God has made us in his image, okay? The issue for us is that we have unbelievable capacity because of whose image we're made in, but you still have to come under the authority of the one who made you to learn how to use it in a way that brings life to the world. Does that make sense? You still have to come under that authority. In fact, I was thinking this week, in many ways, God goes about the work of subduing, practicing authority, cultivating, and keeping our lives as we seek to subdue, practice authority, cultivate, and keep the garden that is set in front of us. It's almost as if we are his garden, and then he gives us a garden of our own. Does that ring true this morning? And he places all this capacity in us, all this potential in us, Right, to be able to do all these things in our lives, but he calls us to come under his authority so that we do it correctly, so that instead of bringing death to the world, we bring life to the world. See that? So I think one of the things I want you to take home today is that you're more than you think you are. Remember the Transformers back in the day, more than meets the eye? Right, that's true of you. Some of you have uh, somehow taken on a mentality that you're nothing when the reality is you're something. You were made by God to image him, and you're capable of a lot, a lot more than you think, right? It's not just as a parent, it's as a boss, it's as a human being, it's as a friend, it's as an individual. In every way in your life, you have great capacity. The question is, will you take that capacity and bring it under the authority of the one who made that capacity in you? See that? So like step one today is this. Some of you recognize that you have all this capacity, all these gifts in you that God's given you, but you don't have a relationship with the one who gave them to you. And today, the right move for you, before you bring your, your gifts and talents and abilities and capacities under his authority, you just need to know him and have a right relationship with him. And here's what the Bible tells us. Humanity rebels against God, it creates a rift in our relationship, but God sends Jesus into the world to live the perfect life that we can't live and die the death that we deserve so that we might have eternal life and a right relationship with God. God did that on your behalf. 
so that you might have a right relationship with him so that, we use big words like discipleship, but really so that you can align your life with him and become like him and as you do so, bring more life into the world. But it starts with a right relationship with him and I wonder today, are there people here today who don't have a right relationship with God? Are there folks here today who would say, you know what? I recognize the capacity in me, but I keep using it for the wrong things. And it all starts with the fact that I don't have a right relationship with God and I need God to save me and make me his kid. I don't wanna take the, I don't wanna take the metaphor too far because obviously moms, right, they're the best. None of us would be here without them. But imagine these two young men, Jackson Holiday and Marvin Harrison on their own with all this potential, all this capacity, but they don't have a dad, right? Now, you know, hypothetically, people would come along them and notice their talent and, and grow them and help them become, but like what better than just having a, the dad there to teach you, to help you become who you were made to become? But some of you don't have the dad, right? You're floundering around in life and you need a right relationship with the one who made you. So let's do that today. Like if we could, let's just close our eyes across the room. We're gonna pray for a second. And before we get into you believing that there's more to you than you think, before we dive into that, let's just dive into this. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, you don't know your father, you've never put your faith in, in God to save you from your sin and give you right relationship with him, I believe that God is pursuing your soul. He wants you to be his kid. He wants to save you from your sin. He wants to teach you how to live this life every day. And we believe that God's done everything that needs to be done for you to come home. You just have to respond and say, yeah, God, I wanna come home. I just wonder today, if you're here and you say, Kirk, I wanna put my faith in Jesus to save me. I wanna become a Christian. I wanna come home to, the God, to God today. If that's you, if everybody's head down and eyes closed, and you say, Kirk, I wanna put my faith in God for the first time today, would you just raise your hand so I can see it? Nobody's looking at you. So let me see it, I see you right there, awesome. Just raise it high so I can see it. Yep, I see you right there, man. Anybody else? All right, you can put those down. Let me pray for those, those in the room. I see you back there, buddy. Let's, let's, let me pray for you. God, I pray for these people today that as they take this step, that you would show them that you're the good father you are. That you would call them into uh, a daily walk with you. That you'd teach them how to use all this potential and capacity you've put in them for good. To bring life. Lord, thank you for saving us when we call out to you. Thank you that you don't say no, you say yes. And you say yes because of what Jesus did for us. So Lord, I pray for these folks that have put their faith in you for the first time today. You'd help them to walk with you and that you would help them to know that you never let them go. You're always their dad. And you're happy to be. 
Perhaps I could pray for everyone else in the room. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today who feel like they are nothing. People who put their faith in you long ago, but they just feel dejected and beat down like they are absolutely not worth anything. People who feel like life is too hard and the garden is too messy. Lord, would you give them the thought today that you made them for this? That you haven't left them and when they don't know what to do, you'll show them what to do. Lord, help us to think rightly about ourselves. Help us to think rightly about you that we might live the lives that you called us to. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your good name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you have any questions about what you just heard, we'd love to talk with you. You can get connected at hnw.org about what we believe or how to join a small group or follow us on social media as well. Thank you so much for joining us and we'd love to see you soon.